Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hey guys, what are you doing? Shh, we're practicing for trivia night. Trivia night? Yeah, next Saturday, May 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern, BPI, ACB students, and NextGen will be hosting our first trivia night. Can anybody join? Well, they're looking for teams of five or six, but singles can join and they'll be put on a team randomly. All you have to do is go to our events page or email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. See you there. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Main or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Good evening. Welcome to Pride Connection. I'm one of your co-hosts, Anthony Corona. I am here, of course, with Gabriel lopez Cafati, president of BPI. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here with Leah Gardner, vice president of BPI. Hey, everybody. I'm not alone this week. You guys are back. We have a great show prepared for you. We are talking about working blind in the sighted world, but a couple of announcements first. As some of you may remember, we were supposed to have Leslie Jordan, a.k.a. Beverly Leslie from Will and Grace. But his show, I should say, is going back into production in Hollywood. So he's got to haul his tiny little butt from Tennessee back to L.A. this week. So he has promised us airtime towards the end of June and we'll celebrate some pride stuff with him. I also want to remind you guys that we are partnering up with NextGen and ACB students this coming Saturday night at 8 p.m. for a trifecta trivia night. The postings are all over, but you can always email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org for an invite. Teams of five or six, and we're going to have an awesome time hosted by Nancy Mark Becker and Cindy Van Winkle in the background. Gabriel, are you ready for your president's message? Absolutely. I'll keep it short and simple because like Anthony said, we have an amazing show and we have some awesome guests, all BPI members. And uh, just say hi to everyone and just hoping everyone is staying safe and healthy. Um, Letting also everyone know we have convention coming up. As Leah has been mentioning, we have an awesome program. So check it out. Go to pre-registration, acb.org. Also wanted to share with you, as Anthony also mentioned earlier, we're going to be coming up to Pride Month. For the, those of you who don't know, uh, June is considered Pride Month, LGBT Pride. So we're going to have some amazing shows and some awesome guests in celebration of Pride. So stay tuned. Everyone stay well. Thank you for joining us. And let's get the party started tonight. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the theme for tonight's show is Working Blind in the Sighted World. So we gathered up a bunch of our awesome BPI members who have some interesting jobs, and they are here to talk about their experiences. Gabe, why don't you go first? I'm going to introduce part of our guest tonight, and uh, our co-host, Leah Gardner, will introduce half of our guest. 
Jess Kell. Hey, you guys. I'm Jess. I live in or just outside of Baltimore. And I, for 10 years, have been, I'm a social worker, and I've been working in the addictions field. And right now, theoretically, once COVID is over, I will be returning. Uh, Yay layoffs. But I work for a Mm -hmm. methadone clinic um, affiliated with a hospital. So I do a little bit of addictions work and a lot of mental health therapy. Thanks, Jess. Um, Maria Christich. Hello, everyone. I'm Maria Christich in Albany, New York. I have a JD with focus in business law and an MBA with focus in finance. And since 2017, I've been a senior financial analyst for the Dormitory Authority of the state of New York. I support our post-issuance compliance requirements for the tax-exempt bonds that we issue. And having both a business and legal background, I also work with our CFO on various other initiatives such as contract reviews. And I've done accessibility testing for our website because I have the experience as a screen reader user. And so I've worn quite a number of hats so far. Awesome. Thank you. Scott Marshall. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be working since I was 26 years old. Not always in the sighted world, but I have uh, ranging from real estate sales to working as an attorney, of course, in the blindness world and disability world as a disability rights advocate and lobbyist in Washington. And uh, I've had a lot of opportunities to sort of pivot as opportunities became available. And I think that's certainly something we can talk further about later. Nice. Gabriel, why don't you tell them what you do during the day when you're not running BPI as president. I feel that even though I work in a very, very sighted world, I do deal a lot with disabilities and um, a lot of blind and visually impaired folks because I am uh, the adaptive technology specialist for Miami-Dade College North Campus. So I basically deal with having initial assessment with students when they come into the college through the Access Services Department. And I uh, work with them in their special accommodations, whatever those are basically developing a plan for a semester and for their tenure in college to make sure that they have all the special accommodations that they require for accessing information, testing, and any other projects or classroom activities that the students need. So you definitely work with most a predominantly cited group of people, as does our other co-host, Leah. Leah, before you introduce the rest of our guests, why don't you tell them what you do in that magical company you work for? Sure. I work for uh, a major tech company. Contract precludes me from saying which one. I uh, am an accessibility tester, and there are a, a few other visually impaired employees that are spread throughout the company. But primarily, I work with sighted colleagues, many of them from another culture and from very different backgrounds. When I began working where I am right now, I've been there for about two and a half years. I had come from the uh, blindness sector. I had been an adaptive technology instructor, and it was quite a change. Um, It was extremely different. I ran into a lot of uh, (laughs) strange situations, people not knowing how exactly to deal with a uh, blind woman and a dog coming at them Mm -hmm. in the cafe, people just not knowing how to to talk to me without yelling loudly. Um, (laughs) It's been an experience. And I think we're going to hear a lot of that tonight. So who else do we have with us, Leah? So we have John Denning. 
Hello, everybody. This is John. I've had quite a few actual careers starting right out of high school. I landed a dream job that I really wanted and I had actually put in for it uh, a year before. I was the photographer for the city of San Jose, California Police Department, and that included photography and darkroom work. And I have also worked as a cook and chef, catering chef, and uh, in the computer industry and IT. I worked for Super Mac Technology back in the 80s and 90s, uh, the Macintosh industry. And the latter, last half of my career was uh, with the government. I was an enterprise system administrator, a Wintel administrator. Nice. Great. And we also have with us Richard Marion. Hi, I'm Richard. I live in near Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So my career was I spent 25 years working in small business, doing working in the construction industry, specifically uh, gravel trucks. So more closely related to the transportation part of construction and the, and the trucking side of it. Um, I did administrative work, so bookkeeping, accounts payable, receivable, payroll, general office duties. Uh, more recently, I've begun working more closely on disability issues in uh, TransLink, which is our public transit agency. I was in the Access Transit Planning Department uh, as the uh, departmental coordinator. And last but absolutely not least, we have Dennis Sims. Hello, everybody. My name is Dennis Sims. Um, I started my career uh, approximately 20 years ago. I started out in tax law, and I worked as a tax law specialist for approximately nine years, and it was quite rewarding and uh, challenging at times. In addition to that, I decided to get into other aspects of law as far as tax law, as far as the financial aspect, working with the government, identifying and uh, understanding the various ins and outs of financial planning, financial direction, and other aspects. And so I've been doing that for the last 20 years. And like I said, at times it's quite rewarding. And there's other times that are challenging. And I'm pretty sure that is something that we'll hear often as well. So let's start the conversation tonight with going into a new work environment with a sight impairment, low vision or no vision at all. Did you have to sell yourself very much to get the job? And when you first got into the workplace, did you find that you had to sell and explain yourself a lot more than your sighted colleagues? Yeah, I find uh, when I first started employment that when I first went to city of Cincinnati, and that's where I started, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. It was quite challenging in the beginning when you are in a sighted environment and someone who's visually impaired come into that environment or quote unquote invade that environment to give a different perspective, a different aspect of the job. One, you find yourself extremely working harder to prove yourself as a visually impaired person. Mm -hmm. Two, you find, I found myself really combating the myths and images that people have of visually impaired people. I really, I enjoy the uh, challenge. I, I have uh, come quite a long ways in educating the people about who I am and what I am instead of what I cannot do. So 
Maria, you work in a very high pressure area and you have varied responsibilities. What was your experience coming in and, and coming up the ladder? When I initially interviewed, I brought my laptop with me so that I could show how I could accomplish a task. For instance, I showed creating a chart in Excel because I thought that that was something that they would figure I might have a difficult time doing non-visually. And of course, I came with my dog. And I think the thing I started with right from the get-go was to be a bit assertive, not in an aggressive way, but in a way that showed that I was going to set the terms of how I was going to receive help. So anything from the person who was helping me to the interview room, I would tell her that I would take her arm or that I would have my dog follow her. And I think it helped that some of the folks who interviewed me actually ended up being and have ended up being my closest coworkers. So they did see initially how I carried myself and how I carried out tasks, and that did certainly help. I initially came in for orientation with a mobility instructor, but again, I really tried to keep the focus on myself with a conversation with some new coworkers that I was meeting, and through, I think, asking a lot of questions about the work and the office layout and such, and just showing that I was interested, I think that helped them to break the ice uh, to just see, you know, okay, she's blind, but she's, you know, working with us and she's asking some of the same questions that we would ask when we were new. And I found too that with getting introduced to new people, yes, of course, I certainly had to do some educating. I had my boss send out an email explaining about guide dog etiquette. Uh, but <laughs> I think too, just making sure kind of the ball was in my court as much as I could saying, you know, I'll, if I need help, I'll ask you, feel free to use words like see and look and watch. I use them all the time too. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, just fe- um, to kind of taking the lead. Okay. I have this technology that I'm using as an accommodation and you know, the, uh, the uh, information technology people had read a little bit about the accommodation, but, you know, showing that I was willing to help them out and answer their questions about it, I think really helped to break the ice. I think I found that people generally were, once they saw that I was in a way kind of taking charge of the situation and uh, leading on how they should interact with me, they, uh, it really helped to break the ice that they could see that, you know, I wasn't going to get offended if they used the wrong word or if they said the quote unquote wrong thing, which there wasn't really a, a wrong thing to say. And so I, and I think also having a, a guide dog helped to break the ice mm-hmm. too, you know, a yeah. bunch of dog lovers. And so um, I actually was fortunate that I had a pretty uh, positive experience going in. Jess, I want to change the question a little bit for you because you deal with both sided coworkers and clientele. What was your experience like when you first walked into one of the clinics or one of the therapeutic situations? I find that it's always a little trickier with my coworkers than it is with the patients, especially in terms of addictions and homelessness and low income and all these things. I think the patients have a minute of, wait, what? And then they're relieved because... (laughs) We have a bunch of people who feel judged. They often feel judged by their appearance or by their addictions or by their anything. And it's sort of twofold. Then and they'll say it to me and, and I don't like the inspiration porn thing, but <laughs> I can respect when they say to me, you know, I look at you and you get up every day and you come in here to try to help us. So if you can do that, maybe I can work a little harder and do a little better in my life. And maybe, you know, I should uh, strive for and, and achieve a little more. Coworkers are a little trickier. My first job, I was just sitting here thinking about this. So the first job that I got out of grad school, it took me a year. 
I interviewed and interviewed and interviewed and interviewed mm. and I would go in with my dog and I would get the, oh, yes, <laughs> culturally competent social worker. You are about to interview a blind person. I'm glad you did that reaction. Except How did you get here today? Oh, yeah. Who brought you? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Where's your handler? So, and, yeah, yeah. No, I was the handler because when I started with all this, I did have a service dog. I don't have one now. So it was always interesting to watch people's reactions to me, to watch people's reactions to her, because there's a lot of fear of dogs in the city. And I've always worked in Baltimore and lived sort of on the outskirts. But in the first job, what I found out later is that one of the people interviewing me was very against me coming and did not want a blind coworker. She was fun. So that doesn't really matter. <laughs> but I have found that in all my interviews and in all of the jobs that I've had, because I've worked at three different clinics in the last 10 years, it's been networking that has helped me because there's always somebody who can say, oh, she's actually really good at this. I think you should, should take her. I would vouch for her for sure. And um, the job before this last one that I had, I actually had a friend who was going to be my boss. And I said, look, I don't want you in the interview. I want to get in on my own merit. I don't want them to know that I know you. So it's always been really interesting. I feel like coworkers pretty quickly get comfortable. They'll be a little, a little nervous, but they'll ask questions. With my patients, I go out, I call for them, shake their hand. We walk back to the office and I grab my braille note and I just say, okay, well, let's look at the schedule and let's figure out when, when you're available and how to get you in for your intake and whatever. And they just get it because they see blind chick with a cane. They see the, the braille thing. Obviously they can see that I'm reading it. And so, and I just tell them, this is a blind person laptop, just in case you're curious about it. So just not, not writing secret things about you, just putting your name mm -hmm. in the schedule and it kind of breaks the ice and they crack up and, and, and we're good. I think it works honestly better than I could have imagined. You, you know, Jess, one, one thing Maria mentioned was going into the workplace and bringing her laptop and demonstrating how to interpret a, a, a chart on Excel. But I know one thing you have struggled with, I think at every job is databases in your field that are inaccessible and unusable. And I'm wondering how you've dealt with that challenge. So I, I learned very quickly not to say I can't and to say we can figure this out and here's how we <clears throat> might work around this. And it's been challenging sometimes because so my first job, we had a database that was paid for to be scripted. JAWS was scripted to work with it. And that worked really well until the state released a bunch of forms that were not accessible that I needed to do for insurance policies and uh, getting payment and all these different things. So the mandates have increased for electronic health records and everything has to be online, which seems really great, except for none of these things are often programmed with accessibility in mind. Often they're server-based instead of being web-based. So mm. getting JAWS to see anything can be really difficult. And so a lot of what I've had to do right now where I'm working, we have a system for mental health and we have a system for substance use, neither of which I can use. Uh, the substance use one I can use a tiny bit, but I can't read any of my notes because it reads together like a big string of characters with no spaces and no punctuation. Oh, wow. And the problem is they forget. Mm. So I've worked around it so well and then was out on maternity leave that when I announced a year later to my supervisor, yeah, well, I can't tell 
which notes that you want me to redo. Cause remember I can't read notes. Well, what do you mean you can't read notes? So this has mm. been a year. <laughs> I have the emails. I, I can prove this to you. We definitely discussed this. So a lot of what I do is use word, try to type my progress notes differently. And be, if you're in a job where they want you badly enough, they will figure out workarounds or they will fund accessibility, which generally is not going to happen because it's very expensive to do scripting. This is just not going to happen. So what I've learned is you have to just be willing to roll with it. And even though you're frustrated, and even if sometimes it feels sort of demoralizing to not be on the same page and to not have the same level of access to all of the data, you just roll with it, you use really good memory and figure it out. Uh, this is Scott. What I've been hearing so far, and I agree with my colleagues here today on so much of what they've already said, that a lot of us have had to be willing to change, to change uh, sometimes on a dime uh, as circumstances required it in order to get the job done, in order to uh, even get in the door for an interview. And I think if I was telling my 18-year-old self or wanting to give my 18-year-old self some advice, I think that's what it would be, is that the days of having a single career are over, uh, and you've got to be flexible and be able to change as technology changes. And that's a huge topic we could get into, of course, because what is accessible today isn't accessible tomorrow. Uh, what yeah. works today doesn't work tomorrow, mm -hmm. but yet we've got to be able to go with the flow and, and make it work. And sometimes that also means, uh, you know, concentrating and, and making sure your colleagues know what you are particularly well suited to do, uh, what you're an expert on. And again, what you're an expert on today can change too tomorrow. But I remember, you know, when you first start practicing law, it's all grunt work, it's all very visually dependent work. It's stuff that we're not really good at doing, quite frankly, uh, without a lot of assistance. But it gets better over time. And even now, after, you know, now I've been with the government for 20 years, I've developed an area of expertise that people want in the agency and come to me to ask questions about. And so far, that's worked. Now, it may change tomorrow, and I may have to learn a whole new, a whole new area to be able to um, demonstrate my worth. But the, I, I think it's just really critical that you are willing to change and then also willing to become an expert in something that the employer needs and wants. It's interesting that you brought that point across because it kind of leads into the next segment of topics that I wanted to pose out there. And I'm going to start with JD, you know, not calling anyone out, but JD, you've had a long storied, multi-layered career path. How different was it towards the end of your career from the beginning of your career, as far as accessibility and coming in, you know, as a person with vision issues to the work world? Okay. Yes. A lot has changed since uh, 74. But my job's changed also, and I've had every experience from working with, with teams of people that were, it was a non-issue. It wasn't even spoken. It was just a non-issue. My first job at the police department, I needed some accommodations, but we just all sat down together and, okay, now what can we do to make this easier? Ah, how about this? You know, and we did that as a team. We were a very small team, uh, I think five people in, in my department. 
And uh, so that was great. That was just a super positive experience and it went well. Now jump forward to uh, working for the IRS. I earned my uh, Microsoft certification, so Microsoft engineer, and I was hired under a Schedule A, which is uh, hiring for uh, disabled people. So I was brought in, but you're on probation. Now I start the job, new city, uh, start the job, and the first person I meet who later became my manager, the first thing he said was, I don't know what you're going to be able to do around here. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And the hostility grew from there. I worked Mm. with some great people, but I worked with some that were just overtly hostile towards having a visually impaired person. Now, at the IRS, they have a lot of visually impaired employees, and at at the Atlanta campus, uh, quite a few. But uh, it was that. So I had to prove myself. And I've heard this from other visually impaired people that we're constantly, we can't be complacent in our skill set. We mm-hmm. have to be at the top of our game. We have to be good. We can't just be, ah, so-so. No, because we make a mistake, it's because we're blind. Mm-hmm, correct. If a person makes a mistake, oh, they just had a bad day. They just made a mistake. People do that. <laughs> so, Richard, no. <laughs> have you had that experience? Do you feel that people are looking at you and you have to be twice or three times as good as everybody else around you? It depended on the situation. Like in my case, I, I took a position. It was a small business and it was a family business. So the expectations of what I can and can't do may have been set through my growing up years, but I graduated from college and I'm like, oh, what are we going to do now? Uh, so I kind of went in with this idea that they they had never automated office processes. So I said, well, I can help you do this, this and this, and it'll make it more efficient for me. And then I can do all these types of things. But what I found as time went on is technology changed and the software applications that we initially chose became less and less accessible. I had to sort of go back and change my expectations of what I could and couldn't do, but they did just assume that I still could do some of these other things. And uh, when I was a bit younger, I had a bit more usable vision so I could read uh, handwritten documents to input into our data management system and things like that. Uh, As my vision changed uh, slightly due to uh, problems with my corneas, not related to my main cause of visual impairment, it became clear to me that I that I really couldn't do that part of my work as, as efficiently anymore. So then I had to sort of come up with other alternatives, which, which really did involve having someone come to read some stuff for me and assist with that. But I did it for 25 years, and I, I think I got comfortable in the position, comfortable to the point where I didn't want to take any risks. So about three, four years ago, I decided, okay, I'm going to change or modify my career objectives. And I did a lot of volunteer work in accessibility and working with people with disabilities, generally blind people specifically. So I started kind of looking to sort of change my career to be more in the accessibility field, generally with people with disabilities. And so two years ago, I found the perfect opportunity. I filled in for someone that was on mat leave in our transit agency. So it kept my fingers in the transportation field, yet brought me closer to my ultimate career goal now, which is to be more in accessibility services. So so I made the transition from working in a small business to a large government environment and surprisingly made it quite well. I think I only was told a couple of times by my manager, I sounded too much like an advocate over the time that I was there. <laughs> um, in the small business, I was the only person who was blind and, uh, and a lot of our customers and, and a lot of times, especially if I was only dealing with people on the phone and they, they'd walk in the office, were, were really shocked or surprised that they were dealing with someone that was blind. And I knew 
as much about dispatching trucks and how to get around <laughs> the city and even about job costing for construction sites as some of the other people in, that we worked with as well too. So it allowed me to create a unique set of skills that I probably wouldn't have got if I would, if I would have just continued uh, volunteering accessibility and maybe took on a, a job in tech services uh, initially like I was kind of thinking initially. Richard, I think both you and I have a very unique perspective coming you from north and I, me, myself from south. Everything that has been shared by everyone here as far as first impressions or walking into your first day of work in a sighted world. Being in Canada, do you share the same experience or more or less some of the experiences that others have shared here or has your experience been different up in Canada? I would say my experience has been similar to the point as far as people's impressions of what I can and can't do. Especially when I had made the, the decision to start looking for other work and going to job interviews and uh, just knowing that you're sitting across from the person and they're like, how are you going to do this work? How are you going to do this work? And, and even though I was initially applying for work similar to what I was already doing in my family's small business, it was uh, most of the interview was spent of about trying to basically justify how I do the work as a person who is blind. And uh, even though I had a lot of work experience in the area, the other thing that's different here is for me personally is because I ended up going into work in small business, a, a lot of sort of employment programs for people with disabilities to that might get hiring preference didn't apply to that industry that I was in. So even though I got work, it was really because of family connections and who I knew. Even when I made the trans transition to the transportation agency, I had done 10 years of volunteer work on their advisory committee for people with disabilities and, and uh, knew people there that could have helped me get the work. But I really did have to prove that not only was I skilled in disability issues, I had the administrative skill to be the departmental coordinator and could take on other duties that uh, that were outside of working with the advisory committee as well too and including doing research and uh, making recommendations on things from a more neutral perspective than I would have as an advisory committee member. I'd like to ask openly to all of you guys and gals, have you encountered situations where your coworkers, because of the accessibility things that you've had to put in place, felt like now you get the easy ride or you get the easier job because you have accessibility and or you're being shown around the office, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do you experience that level of competition slash jealousy in workplace settings? Definitely. My previous job, so the one that I'm in now, they were going to do scripting for me and then they decided that they weren't. And I was told you need to accept a level of interdependence and allow us to do things that need to be done. And they outsourced and had uh, someone from another country pasting my notes into the health record. And they wanted me to give my signature code so that they could sign off for me. And I said, absolutely not. This oh, is a wow. violation. I'm not doing that. In the mean, meanwhile, they were doing intakes. This clinic has, oh, I don't know, 3,500 patients, which is huge. It's a sort of a methadone factory. We Everybody around the city jokes about it. It's pretty intense. It's a revolving door of patients and of staff. We had more staff leave in the three years that I was there than we had hired there at any given time. It was wild. So they would do these intakes and they would have a board up and there would be 20 names a day. And you as a staff person would be number one, two, three, whatever on the list. And you had to stop what you were doing, quit your session if they called you and take the intake. And this was a 
one to three hour process, depending on whether the patient was intoxicated, how much information they wanted to give, whatever. I didn't do that because I didn't have access to the computer. It would have been so much to have me, which I do do these now, and it is very time consuming at my current job, to have me using a different form, looking at all the questions, writing down my answers, then going back, trying to figure out where to put them in the documents to type it in, in the right little lines and check boxes and whatever in the computer document, then put that up to the database. So I didn't do it. And I know there was a lot of resentment because everybody was miserable having to do these, especially when they knew <laughs> that a lot of these patients were coming to get $20 for doing their intake and then they'd never return. So I definitely felt some friction there. But in that same context, Anthony, I think there's a complimentary question to what you asked, which is, Absolutely. is there any sort of envy or sense that somebody that's visually impaired is getting an easier ride? I think the complimentary question to that is, do you think the expectation bar is lower? too, for visually impaired employees as if, well, maybe you can't do the same amount of work as somebody cited. So we're going to be amazed if you do something impressive or something that exceeds expectations. It's Richard. I think, especially making the change to a large government work, I think that might have been the case. They didn't know what to expect initially and, and, uh, and what kind of work I could do and what I couldn't do, even though I was actually replacing someone that was visually impaired that went on mat leave, they still, I think they, they still weren't sure what to expect because uh, clearly we, we had different skill sets. And so they really weren't sure. So it initially felt the, ex the expectations were lower. So I tried to do my hardest and pushed myself beyond my comfort zone of what I was comfortable doing, uh, especially in when they asked me to do research for the planners and, and come up with some recommendations on standards and regulations as well, too. So I really pushed myself beyond what I was comfortable with and kind of into areas that I probably didn't know as much about just to prove that I could do it the same as anyone else that was doing that similar work for another team in the planning department. I was going to say, I think I helped to set up as much as I could the expectations as others have said on the importance of networking. I got this position Initially, uh, the interview process started because uh, of, a, of a connection of a, from a professor that I had who called some people in the company and said, you yeah, know, you're looking and this person I think would be a good fit and she does good work and such. So I think having that reference initially from someone helped to hopefully raise the bar of expectation. And then I had also prepared a sample of some of my course work that I had done. And I included that with my interview portfolio. And I know for a fact that my boss read it because she made comments on it. So I think all of that uh, has helped at least with my you know, more immediate colleagues to set an appropriate level of expectation. And then I think as I work with newer people who maybe report to my boss or who know her, there's this kind of chain effect. She, from, from their perspective, she recommended me to do this that uh, I must you know, be decent at it. So I think for me, I struggle with almost having too much of a perfectionist sometimes expectation of myself. You know, someone was saying, if you make an error and the thought is, you know, you've made it because you're blind, not because you've had a bad day. I know my boss has specifically said to us just in general at employee meetings and such, be kind to people if they make a mistake or say something irritating, you don't know what's going on in their day, which is definitely appreciated. But there is that thought for 
me in the back of my mind, well, what do they think of this? Do they really think that? Or did they think it was because I was blind? So I think for me, it's been more of an internal perfectionism struggle with myself. Am I meeting my own expectations? And I think I need to work on that and being a bit kinder to myself in that area and follow her advice. And Scott, before we move on from this topic, I think you have a unique perspective being a little bit more public and being in the law profession. Have you experienced the bar being set lower because you were blind or people saying that you have the job easier because you have all these assistive aids and so on and so forth? Keep in mind that I started my law practice in 1977. And at that time, the law firm that I worked for, which was large by Buffalo, New York standards, 55 lawyers, they were very good to be. And I had a very good experience there, except they felt they would not be comfortable having a blind lawyer before a jury. And that Mm -hmm. this was going to be perceived negatively in a rather small legal community in Buffalo, New York, where everybody knew everybody else. And as much as I tried to convince them otherwise, they just never got past that. Now, having been said, they never penalized me for it. They gave me other tasks that they probably would not have given other lawyers at my level, like arguing an appellate case or at our appellate division, that kind of stuff. Appearing before a judge, no problem. Doing a deposition, no problem. Just don't go before a jury, which made me feel... Like less of a litigator, which I thought I wanted to be at the time. And uh, I, I got to the point, and maybe this should be the next turn in our conversation. Let's talk a bit about job satisfaction and joy versus money. We all need money to keep Snoopy's bowl filled, but how do we balance the joy and the job satisfaction stuff? At that time, I decided four and a half years with a law firm, and probably they would have made me partner eventually in another year or so. Did I really want to do what I was doing there and not being before a jury and worrying about whether State Farm paid out too much of its reserves when they paid claims and all that? And that's when I changed track entirely and got into the disability rights business uh, and, and was there for 20 years. Leah, you have a unique perspective on on that as well. You changed paths a couple of times and your career is still young, so to speak. Can you give us a little of your perspective? I've worked in some extremely different sectors. I don't know if a lot of people know that when I was much younger and I was in my early 20s, I thought that I was going to run around the country being a performance poet. And what Scott said about needing to figure out how to have some money in the bank, basically, I had to do that and I had to settle down to some degree because what I dreamed of doing just was not going to cut it financially. And so I ended up pretty much by accident becoming an access technology trainer. And then I had the opportunity to work for a major tech company. Because of that, my life now is much more financially comfortable than it ever was. And I do really appreciate that aspect of it. And I'm, I'm grateful in a lot of ways for it. But there's also a big part of me that misses AT training. I didn't ever think I'd say this when I was actually training, but I feel in some ways it was more rewarding actually witnessing somebody's reaction when they discovered they could actually still perform tasks and they could accomplish their banking or 
sending an email to their grandchild after losing their sight. There was a definite uplift for me, yet I wasn't making a reasonable living. So I think I ask myself that question a lot now because sometimes I work on products that I don't feel are going to positively impact blind people necessarily. I work on a lot of internal tools and kind of framework pieces. I fear sometimes that I'm making a really comfortable living, but I'm not living up to my own expectations in terms of helping the visually impaired community. Probably something that's going to take me a lifetime to reconcile. Does anybody else want to speak to to this turn of the conversation? Go ahead, Def. So for me, I'm finding... I'm I'm having a lot of thoughts about how I want to proceed too. And I mean, we always joke that among social workers, oh, well, clearly we didn't get into this for the money. But <laughs> that being said, there is something to be said for knowing what my salary is, for knowing that no matter what I do, as long as I'm doing good work, I've got the security. But as the databases change, as we implement more and more use of things that are not accessible, I think more and more about, first of all, I want more autonomy. I want to choose who I work with. I want to choose what software I work with. I want to be, I want to be thought of. And if nobody else in a huge corporation is able to or willing to do that, I can do that for myself. But that also means taking huge financial risk and doing that with a tiny baby. It feels like this scary sort of crossroads. What do I do? Do I stay somewhere where, where we've found some workarounds when I'm not actually satisfied with that and I don't have as much access to the data as I'd like? Or do I branch out and take the financial risk for my entire family, but try to do something that feels a little more fulfilling and a little more like cutting out the middleman? Gabriel? So I've been through so many phases in my professional development that I I can relate a little bit with everyone and with what everyone has said here. I started off just fresh out of law school in Honduras, and I, you know, got recruited by a very, very well-known corporate law firm who has a lot of big clients and both locally and international clients. And uh, also through connections, uh, like many of us here, through, you know, knowing someone in the law firm. And then I had to definitely prove myself and make them aware that I was capable of so many things, but definitely had to prove myself more than than the rest. Um, Latin America being a very, very, the legal field is very aggressive. It's, you know, it's a shark tank. I experienced the same thing as Scott said a moment ago. I experienced when they started hesitating. Well, can we send him to stand in front of a jury? Are they going to take advantage of him? Uh, Is he going to be able to see into the, or read into the nonverbal cues? And, you know, the system is so corrupt that it's, they're going to be laughing in his face. So, you know, a lot of things that limited me in that part. I was not so acquainted with adaptive technology back then. Um, then I moved into the corporate world. That was, I loved it. I really loved uh, working in the uh, international business with, you know, marketing and introducing products here in the U.S., especially the coffee business, which is uh, part of my family back in Honduras is, is in that business. So I love that because of the exposure, because of the diversity, and because I felt that in the business world, people were more open and were more welcoming to diversity. And uh, 
disability was just another way of doing things. But obviously at that point I was an independent contractor. I was not working under anyone. So basically everyone was happy as long as I was doing my job. And then I, that's when I had to like reinvent myself and then go into, you know, going back to school and getting an MBA and trying to go into management and other services with, especially in the disability and diversity field. And I've had other jobs. I think the one where I've been the most uncomfortable was when I worked at Baptist Hospital because there's so much, like Jess mentioned a moment ago, HIPAA and and other regulations that they were almost afraid that I was going to say the wrong thing to a patient. So they were like, no, 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 don't do this. We'll do that. No, 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 don't do that. We'll take care of that. And then, uh, you know, wanting to walk to me to the to the restaurant because they were afraid that what was their exposure if something happened to me in the street i mean it was it was so uncomfortable i i i didn't enjoy that environment and finally i came to miami Dade college where you know i i feel comfortable because i work with sighted and non-disabled co-workers but at the end of the day they respect me not only because of my professional background but also due to my disability because here i am showing them how to do our work i tell them what a person with a disability what a student with a disability needs and expects from us so um i I like this part of my professional life and, and i would like to stay on it for a little while more that's a little bit of my perspective. Dennis, before we move on, do you have any thoughts on on this subject? One of the things that I find challenging more than being at the job itself is having the technology. I work for a large organization and working for this organization, it doesn't give me the ability to expand in the manner that I want to grow and develop in. It's, It's limited by their restricted technology. The job holds you to a standard equal to your colleagues or your counterparts at work. We are required to do the same work. And although I'm dealing with adapted equipment and a lot of other things that get the job done equally and as productive as my coworker, there are so much more out there as far as technology that can be incorporated into the organization that can make the job easier. But I find, as visually impaired people often talk about, such as myself, you end up working so much harder than your average coworker because mm-hmm. you are constantly working yeah. to get workarounds. You're constantly working four or five different applications at one time versus they just viewing the screen. It is so often time when you get at the end of your day, you're completely mentally exhausted. But to me, it's rewarding to walk out knowing that you can keep up with your coworkers, not only keep up, but exceed in so many different areas. But it's weary to find yourself limited by technology that the organization willing uh, to provide or not willing to provide and limit you on what you can bring within the organization to make your job easier. I want to touch on the white elephant. The big statistic that is bandied about a lot is 70%, 70% unemployed in the blind and visually impaired fields. And then you have organizations out there whose motto is to basically drive home. There is absolutely nothing that we can't do that a sighted person can do. And yet most of the training services and or educational services to to put you in career paths, so on and so forth, want to pigeonhole people into these 
certain little industry areas where every other blind person that they know is working. What do you all have to say to that? First off, can we do everything that a sighted person can do in the workplace, the VR services? No, we cannot do everything. And I know that's not politically correct. I know that's not waving the flag, but (laughs) some things are sighted, folks. That's just it. Some things are sighted. But but, uh, that doesn't mean we can't do anything in that career. Like say, okay, you can work at Uber, managing it, you know, the the infrastructure and so forth, Mm -hmm. and and writing the app for it, uh, making it consistent and not changing it every few seconds. Uh, You know, so Mm -hmm. there are things we can do in an industry we like, but that doesn't mean we can do every job. And I I really hate that because it gives people this false sense of, I can do anything. And then you (laughs) run out the block. So then what, what is the net? result of that discouragement you went through this i know you experienced some significant sight loss in the past four or five years that led to you having a lot more difficulty at your work yes i was hired as a blind person and i was promoted into positions knowing i was visually impaired now on a day-to-day basis i worked with people that had no idea i was visually impaired because i worked all over the country i was an enterprise (laughs) administrator so I'd be on conference calls and working on projects with people who, you know, would never come. Oh, by the way, I'm visually impaired. No, that just never <laughs> came up. But my, my eyesight started going south in about 2016. And the program that my team was using does not work with JAWS <laughs> at all. I mean, not even a little bit. It just doesn't read. It's just a blank screen. The uh, team that actually owned that program. They were the administrators of the program. We were the users of that program. The administrators, they had a visually impaired guy on there. He was colorblind. So he could see and read normally. He was colorblind. And he says, it works for me. So that was the struggle. But there was no way I can make that accessible. You know, there there was nothing short of of being given given, uh, godlike powers to make that accessible. Mm And because of that, I was kind of pushed out and ended up taking early retirement. If that were true, that we can do anything a sighted person can do, let's see who knows what I would be doing. You'd be flying an airplane. Yep, I would be a pilot. <laughs> oh. Now that I've done. I was going to say fashion design. <laughs> I love fashion design too. That would have been my second I know. career. It's, it's Richard. The one thing I like the, that's different here compared to the United States is the, the estimated unemployment rate here is 80%. And I think that's partly because there's a more prevalence of jobs specifically in blindness services in the state in the United States than there is here in Canada. So it actually becomes that much harder for people to find uh, opportunities here, even if they're looking uh, for things that are quote unquote, not traditionally blind. The the uh, rehab agency here uh, had done some research about th- three, four years ago that they released during employment month. And it indicated that if hiring managers were, were they were asked the question if they had the equally qualified blind applicant and sighted applicant for the same exact job, 70% of them said they would hire the sighted person. So that just yeah, shows what we're up against is for the perception. Like not only do we have to, we, once we get the job, we have to prove that we're, we're more capable than our sighted uh, compatriot. But we also like basically have to demonstrate to hiring ourselves. And then the other part of it that makes it difficult as well too, is once you're in the job, I don't think, especially government agencies and big corporates, they really don't know enough about the adaptive equipment world, how slow or quickly it works. When I got my job, I worked 
for a month providing access to my own adaptive software because it took so long for a given company who has a mon- near monopoly on speech screen reading software that most mm-hmm. government agencies to buy get the from, software to you. get to yeah. get the software list serial number to purchasing so we could install it on my workstation. What was the craziest experience you've had working in a predominantly cited <laughs> workplace? When I was instructing a class, student or trainee passing me a folder and it's full of print material and I said and what am I supposed to do with it this is what I'm supposed to turn in and you were supposed to evaluate and grade it okay you have this in an electronic format why didn't you send it to me well then I just politely say okay thank you turned around passed him my braille training manual and said okay now you read to the class where we're going next so that was probably the <laughs> nice. The most Just. oddest thing. The company I am working for was doing some interviews of people that had various disabilities for kind of like an empathy training day. And they were talking to different people about what sort of issues we face on a daily basis. And at some point, you know, during that interview, I was talking about my guide dog getting around the campus with my guide dog and I'll never forget the woman who was talking to me said, well, is, is he your dog? Do you get to go home with him at the end of the day? <laughs> I'm thinking, no, lady, I, I put him in a closet at the end of the day and I plug him drop him off in the an outlet yeah, in his butt. What, what do you think? I mean, just the amazing leaps of uh, ignorance. ignorance. It was, I <laughs> yeah. didn't even know how to answer the question. Speaking of dogs, I think I had the most awkward moment. And I was the leader of this team. We were working with our internal people, but then we also had some external firms involved and talking with them just with a teleconference, literally by phone. So these people are external. They'd never seen me. They didn't know I was blind. <laughs> never came into play. No idea about my dog. Nothing. And we're going along. And of course, this is when I'm talking. And, you know, Lace is just usually, obviously, in harness and stuff, pretty quiet. And, but, you know, sometimes the doggy instincts kick in. And I think she might have seen a goose or something out the window. And I was saying something like, and now we're going to shift to. And before I said what we were going to shift to, here whoa and everything just kind of stopped and like and I kind of burst out laughing and then I'm thinking to myself these people have no idea that I have a dog they were kind of like what was that about and so I had to just you know kind of pause and like so uh you know gentlemen I just want to let you know I happen to be blind and I have a guide dog and uh you know she saw a goose out there whatever you know and I said so she you know I tried to kind of make a light of the situation she agrees that we need to switch topics or something you know (laughs) but you know it's just but you know you do have to just kind of roll with it and try and find the the humor and things and the good and things and just kind of roll you know roll with the punches and so my dog, I thought he was well behaved enough that I could leave him on without tie down at my desk. I came back to my desk and I'm like, oh, that's weird. The dog's on tie down. My coworker comes around. He said, he said, I hope you don't mind. I had the tie bounty up. He was on walkabout. He was visiting all of us. And, and yeah. he, he wanted to go to the window where the, where the window, I saw oh, the sun was shining in the window. He was, and then, I, I was telling the director of the, the planning department, this, she's like, Oh, that would have been okay. He's a, he could have went by the sun. I said, no, that wasn't okay for you to be going to visit everyone. <laughs> but it, so I kind of I, I kind of laughed because I thought this is a person that expects everyone to be at a hundred percent, ten percent all the time, except for the dog. 
<laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. I once got, oh, Rita just came down. She likes popcorn, by the way. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and yes. in the bag of microwave popcorn. Oh. Oh, and I used to say <laughs> to patients. I used to say, because they'd be like, oh, she's staring at me. I said, I know, Rita. Nobody's fed you in five years. Your life is so hard. Skeletal. And I actually had patients who would be like, you haven't fed her in five years? Like, really? Really? Are, are you asking me that as a legitimate question right now? Well, my favorite was when my dog died, my coworker said on Facebook, oh, we're really sad to hear about Rita. You know, my kids and I used to always sneak and feed her pieces of pork chop. And I'm like, That's I lovely. hate all of you. Right. This is why she smells so bad in me. It's all your fault. <laughs> oh, well, once again, we've lost track of time. And the show must end. Thank you so much to all our, our guests this evening for this riveting and insightful conversation. I have no doubt that we will be back to revisit this topic another time. We barely scratched the surface today. Thank you so much to my co-hosts, Anthony Corona and Gabriel Lopez Cafati. Thank you to our guests for being so candid about their experiences we will see you next week. Until then, be safe, be well, and take care. Good night. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. And join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. They will find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers.